Skokie, Illinois, a suburban community near Chicago, quiet, generally speaking, not quiet, in fact, in the news, very much so, in a, in a way that might be called inflammatory. The year, for a year and a half, from early 77 to middle of 78, it was the case of Skokie versus Frank Collin, the young leader, so-called, of the American National Socialist Party of America, uh, the Nazi Party, American Nazis, and his attempt to demonstrate there. It became a classic case in the study of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. The theme, of course, is the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment specifically applies to those whose ideas may be outrageous and barbaric and anti-democratic and anti-human as they do to the most profound of humanists. And that's what it's about. And David Hamlin is my guest, who was right in the eye of the storm. David Hamlin was the executive director of the Chicago chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union for four years. And a year and a half of those four years involved him, his colleague, the lawyer, David Goldberger, and the case, Frank Collin versus Skokie. And as a result of which, David Hamlin has written a book, and it's a, I think it's a very powerful book, published by Beacon. It's called The Nazi-Skokie Conflict, and the subtitle, A Civil Liberties Battle. The program of David Hamlin, just a moment after this message. This is a classic First Amendment case, Your Honor. It tests the very foundations of democracy. The village of Skokie moves for an order in joining speech before it has occurred, even though that speech is to occur in an orderly fashion in front of the village hall for a period of between 20 and 30 minutes on a Sunday afternoon, this Sunday afternoon. Such an order, whatever we may feel about the content of the speech, violates the very essence of the First Amendment. And as David Hamlin, my guest, author of the book, The Nazi Skokie Conflict, reading the, the opening part of the, of the plea, of David Goldberger, his colleague. Now, you think this is a plea on behalf of a dissenter, you know, as against a community uh, that is um, a community that is anti-democratic, a dissenter who's upholding the rights of Tom Paine figure, but it's a plea for the outrageous Frank Collin and the Na American Nazi Party, isn't it? it? It is not a plea on behalf of, of a revolutionary patriot in the, the traditional framework of, of how we see those people. This is, this is a plea on behalf of probably the most reviled political concept in, uh, in contemporary history, certainly, let's a go, Nazi. Let's go back to the beginnings, how he, Colin, came to the ACLU. Beginnings, the case itself, Frank Colin, this kid, this incredibly outrageous, wretched boy. Frank Collin is like many small-time political movements, unsuccessful political movements, principally a creature of whatever attention he can derive and in whatever outrageous way he can, he can get it. Um, Frank Collin had been a part of the Chicago scene for years prior to his naming of the village of Skokie as the site of a demonstration been demonstrating in Marquette Park for, for years and years and years, um, aggravating a very difficult, tense racial situation. Point out, Colin himself, this is not a major point, but a, certainly a point for psychiatrists. Colin's a Jewish kid, yes. Frank Cohn, his name was, yes. whose father was a Holocaust survivor, a refugee. There is, there is virtually no doubt of, uh, of those facts. And so I suppose for a psychiatrist, self-hatred plays a big role here, too. But this is Colin. Okay, now he's... he's making these 
anti-human outrageous comments, you know, uh, wherever he possibly can. And, and wherever he can successfully is, is primarily in the Marquette Park neighborhood in Chicago for, for several years prior to, to uh, 77. Colin, there are, there are real tough racial questions in, in the Marquette Park area. There are blacks fleeing the inner city and, and the, the ravages of, of awesome racism in Chicago. They, they want out of that as quickly as they can get out and have an absolute right to get out. Um, but they're running up against tightly knit little white ethnic communities, primarily communities composed of folks whose home countries, whose native lands are held under communist domination. They have an enormous investment in preserving their own neighborhood so that, so that it's a special kind of clash in Marquette Park. Frank Collins sat in the middle of that difficult clash, uh, taunting blacks, encouraging whites to, to oppose black moves into their, their neighborhoods. It was, it was part of the cityscape in Chicago for, for some time until things began to heat up in the Marquette Park area. And, and as I say in the book, city, official Chicago finally noticed what was going on out there when there was so much noise in the streets that they couldn't avoid it anymore. Their response, obviously, was not to, to look to the Constitution to find out how to solve the problems, but, but to find a way to stifle all demonstrations in the Marquette Park area, and they did. Um, they resurrected or rewrote, it's not clear, an ordinance which required any group wishing to demonstrate in Chicago's parks to post either a bond or proof of an insurance policy to in the amount of $250,000 prior to the demonstration in the park. That is, before you could get in, you either had to find an insurance agent wacky enough to bond your demonstration against all potential damages for a quarter million dollars, or you had to be able to come up with with 10% of that amount for a bond through a through a bonding agent. So, if you were if you were a rich a pro-Nazi guy, you could do it. Absolutely, absolutely. The one of the strange quirks of ordinances like that, and and as as you know, it it, it emerges again yeah. in the Skokie controversy, yeah. is that it doesn't even provide the would-be censors with the tool they really want. They want a censor by content. It is it is in this case the fascist point of view that they want censored out of the political spectrum. But what what an insurance bond does is to enable them to censor only by amount of money. That is, if Frank Cullen could somehow have found the $250,000, either by bond or through insurance, the, the Park District found itself in the position of having its own hands tied. Once he'd met their requirements, yeah. they were stuck. But this ruling was found unconstitutional. Ultimately, that, that decision, yeah. that, that ordinance, was found to be flagrantly unconstitutional. So it places a price tag on speech. You can't do that. So uh, Frank Cullen, the young wretch, and, and his wretched band of who lost street kids, whoever they were, the combination, uh, could not make it there, right? They couldn't get into Marquette Park for two reasons. First, there was that insurance requirement, which was, at least in Collins' case, and in virtually every other organizational framework that we looked at, including civil rights groups, nobody could find that kind of insurance or bond. It, it just shut the parks down, in Marquette Park particularly. Um, for that reason, Colin was locked out. He was also locked out because it was clear that the Chicago police were prepared to arrest him no matter what he did, if and when he demonstrated in Marquette Park. And indeed, he had been arrested in the summer of 1970, late summer of 76, for following police orders. Now, that's not what he was charged with, obviously, but in fact, Frank Collins staged a demonstration in which he did what the police officers told him to do. Um, and in the, in the response, in an exchange with the, with the chief on the, on the, on the streets there, uh, Colin was arrested literally for, for doing what the police had told him to do. Now, the charge was thrown out later, but what it did, of course, was stop the demonstration cold. The minute Colin was arrested, there was no more noise in, in Marquette Park. 
it's a very effective way of convincing somebody that you're not going to let them demonstrate even if they want to and even if they can surmount some very so difficult what a, legal what a, what requirements. What, a, what applies to Frank Collin could apply to the Martin Luther King group or to any libertarian group or anything. And indeed not, did in, or an in this particular group. instance. Yeah. Um, there, there was an, an opposing point of view to Frank Collins alive and, and, and seething in, in the Marquette Park neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They too had been locked out of the park and were unable to demonstrate because they couldn't find the bonds either. Those were civil rights groups, not yeah. racists. So this is by way of uh, this is the introduction. This is a preface, a prelude to uh, what a happened. A preface, but an important one. Yeah. Um, so what did Colin do? Now he wrote. He applied for for uh, permits. He applied for a permit. Was informed of the two hundred fifty thousand dollars. No, didn't he apply to many communities to a number of? Well, he first tried to get get himself into Marquette Park, and yeah. when he couldn't, when he couldn't surmount that that insurance requirement, he sued the Chicago Park District through ACLU. Well, um, when did he come to see ACLU? He came to see ACLU in the in the summer, perhaps early fall of nineteen seventy six. This is some six or eight months ahead of the the original Skokie litigation, saying, "Here is what the Park District has told me: Is that lawful?" Colin knew it wasn't lawful um, for, a, for a very strange but, but obvious reason. He's a political creature. He's a street operator. He has to know what he can and cannot do on the streets and sidewalks. Otherwise, he gets no public attention at all, and that's how a movement like that survives. So he had a good sense of what basic First Amendment rights were, and he came in saying, I think this one is unconstitutional, and ACLU agreed with him. Um, indeed, we knew other groups who had been locked out of the park for that very requirement and were looking for a case. We took it. We filed it. Normally, one thinks that, that then the wheels of justice begin to move and, and things take place and Frank Collin wins his right and gets back into, the, into Marquette Park. It took almost two years for, for beginning to end in this instance, partially, frankly, because the Chicago Park Distri District was in absolutely no hurry to have that case tried and argued because they, as long as it was in the courts, of course, Collin was not in the parks, and that was their objective. They wanted quiet out there, and they got it this way. So Collin filed the suit and was then faced with the prospect of having to wait out that litigation until if and when he won and maybe get back into Marquette Park. It was at least a year away by anybody's best judgments before that would happen. Or he could, he could just sit and be silent. Well, it's not the nature of that particular movement, and particularly not of Frank Collin, who, who desperately, clearly needed some kind of, of public attention, some kind of focus on, on whatever was going on inside him. Um, so he picked a half dozen suburbs, a dozen suburbs, decided in effect to take his show on the road. Um, he wrote to Evanston, he wrote to Skokie, he wrote, I believe, to Schaumburg. He wrote to a number of, of suburbs in a ring around the city of Chicago. In most cases, he wrote to whoever ran the parks in those suburbs, saying, I would like a permit to demonstrate in your park on such and such a day. Most of the suburbs simply ignored the letter. Um, Evanston never responded to it. The village of Skokie, for reasons which I don't think have ever been made entirely clear, but I think we can, we can fairly guess what happened, uh, the village of Skokie virtually created in response to Frank Collins' this letter. This is the Board of Trustees. This is the Board of Trustees yeah. now of the, of the Skokie Park District. That's a, an entity separate from the, the city council out there. Those in charge of the parks in Skokie created an ordinance which required Frank Collin or anyone else in, who wanted to use the village's parks for a political demonstration to post $350,000 in insurance or bond. They had taken 
a requirement which Colin had already sued in, in court in a different context. They had added another $100,000 to it, and then they wrote it all down and sent him a letter as quickly as they could informing him of, of their new requirement. I, I couldn't have created for them a better red flag. He knew it was unconstitutional. He knew the dollar figure was going to be a, a point of enormous debate in the suit in the Marquette Park case, and that their higher figure was, was therefore something of an insult. And they were obviously frightened of him. They had set up a, an, an enormously complicated mechanism to prevent him from coming to the parks purely because he'd asked them to do so. At that point, Frank Collins' real street instincts took over, and, and, and that strange part of, of his, his political mind, which sees openings for attention, seized on what the Park District in Skokie had done. He saw that that requirement was unconstitutional, and he understood that he had a basic right to demonstrate. He responded not to the Park District trustees in Skokie, but to the village council, the, the elected officials who run the village of Skokie, saying, on the 30th of April, 1977, I am going to demonstrate in front of the Skokie Village Hall for half an hour, leading up to 25 uniformed neo-Nazis in a demonstration in protest of the unconstitutional requirement that bond be posted prior to using Skokie's parks. And now Skokie itself. Now we come to Skokie, and a good portion of its population are Jews, many of whom are survivors of the Holocaust or who have lost families, sons, fathers, children, relatives, dear ones, in the Holocaust of the Nazis. So now we come to dynamite, don't we? We, we come to purely the most explosive political confrontation that, that I think in, in First Amendment terms we have seen in decades. Um, Frank Collin brought to the particular village of Skokie, Illinois, a, a message to which they were uniquely vulnerable. It was indeed a monstrous design of his. There was no question but what it was going to do. It was going to create an enormous emotional uh, upheaval amongst survivors, particularly in the village of Skokie, amongst their families, amongst their congregants in, in the seven synagogues in the village. Uh, even among those non-Jews who, who were so concerned about the, the unique vulnerability of, of members of their community that they were ultimately prepared to go to any lengths to prevent the demonstration. And, and so we come now, now it's known in the news, now we come to the press, we come to TV and we come to radio and newspapers. And here, here is news. Uh, of, of a sort. Um, there are, there are two critical issues, I think, about the way in which the press, and, and the story you've heard so far, of course, was not in the press. Um, there, was, there was virtually no response to the filing of the suit involving Marquette Park and Chicago's Park District. There was, there was no knowledge of which I'm aware, outside perhaps Skokie, of Collins' attempts to use the parks or of the, the Skokie Park District trustees' requirement of $350,000 bond. The point at which Colin wrote to the village and said, I'm going to demonstrate, was the point at which the village officially had to take some kind of action. And the action they took was to ultimately file suit. They, they tried to avoid that. Um, they, they tried to have a somewhat more measured response than to go directly to court and censor. And ultimately, because of the uniquely vulnerable audience in Skokie and their, their out, outright fury over the notion of a Nazi demonstrating in their Justifiable, community. of course, just and understandable, absolutely and absolutely justifiable. Human. And, and 
um, and delivered as as one might expect with enormous passion, um, passion passion virtually impossible to counter with reason. In fact, so here's the background. Um, oh, by the press spoke of a parade. He planned a parade. And it what happened was the the village filed the suit, and and the press at that point saw a great yarn, if nothing else. Here was the perfect villain taking on a, a very nice, quiet Chicago suburb, the suburb trying to protect a uniquely vulnerable audience. It had all the elements of high drama, without question. Um, and, and as a result, I think, there was enormous quantity of coverage about the incident. I do not quarrel with that quantity. I think that there, that, that quantity of, of, of attention to a particular story is, is as, as much the result of the audience demand as it is of an it's editorial the quality decision. you're wondering about. It is the quality of, of that reporting. It is, it is the race to file stories quickly, the use of, of a rotational reporting team, which means that, in, in the case of Skokie, over the 18-month period, only one reporter, of, of which I'm aware, covered the story from start to finish without any break. That reporter was in Skokie. No Chicago paper, no Chicago television station, no Chicago radio station assigned that story to a reporter. As, as you know, as the story began to unfold, it became enormously complicated. It, it became a, a labyrinth of, of litigation. Um, the village had a number of different responses going at the same time. The, the courts were jammed with Skokie cases. Yet the reporters were rotating in and out in a way which made it impossible for them to keep up with the story. And there were, there were serious factual errors perpetrated, in, particularly in the early days. And, and the best one, I think, is, is the prepositional problem. Frank Collin, as, as we heard from David Goldberger's summation of the case, intended to demonstrate on Goldberger, the sidewalk... Goldberger, ACLU lawyer. Absolutely. You are executive director. Who represented yeah. uh, Collin's point of view in, in all of these cases. David points out accurately that what Colin intended to do and what the village agreed that he would do was to demonstrate on the steps in front of the village hall for half an hour, leading up to a dozen probably uniformed, Nazi uniformed demonstrators carrying signs which would say things like white free speech and free speech for whites. He was not going to give a speech. He was not going to distribute literature. And most importantly, he was not going to march through the village of Skokie. The way the press handled that first hearing in, in Judge Joseph Losick's courtroom in, in the Daily Center um, was to report on a planned parade in the village of Skokie, a march through the village of Skokie. The image set then, and the image fixed forevermore in, in the, at least the journalistic view of that story, was of Frank Cullen beginning literally at one side of the village of Skokie and marching straight through to the other side of the village of Skokie, presumably passing the homes of survivors, presumably passing synagogues, presumably assaulting all citizens in the village as he went. That simply is not what was going to happen. And the debate which followed the, the initial hearing in Judge Losick's courtroom exploded into a, uh, an enormous First Amendment brawl over what was in fact a very narrow question. That problem, that, that irrational debate about, about a question far broader than, than need be confronted, lies at the doorstep of the press. They created a, a set of circumstances in which all of the participants were far greater than, than reality dictated, particularly Frank Collins. Um, but, but I was not a great villain in this piece, nor was I a great hero. I frequently found myself feeling like one or the other. As we come to that, to you, David Hamlin, and to your colleague, uh, David Goldberger, the lawyer, we've come to Frank Collin and uh, ACLU, what happened to ACLU, just to set the pattern. It was absolutely understandable 
on the part of the citizens of Skokie, the fury, particularly the Jewish people, the survivors of it who had lost many, and others who believe in decency. This wretched kid representing the most reprehensible of philosophies and thoughts in, the, in demonstrating there. And now we come to something called the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, and we come to ACLU. So he came as ACLU took the case. Now what happened with ACLU? The, um, the opening sentence of that chapter in the book is all hell broke loose. Um, for, for a number of reasons, I think. What, what really happened was that ACLU had found, without intending to do so, I must say, and frankly with, with no clever pre-thought as, as to what a brilliant thing we had done, we took the case because it was indeed a classic First Amendment confrontation. Frank Collin was being censored exclusively on the basis of what he thought and what he represented, not what he was going to say, um, but the idea itself. The idea, in fact, is what, uh, what Skokie ultimately tried to put on trial. For a number of reasons, the re ACLU became a kind of lightning rod um, for, for the enormous anger of the Jewish community over the very notion that Nazism could, could be protected by anything like as lofty a principle as the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. From people who thought that the First Amendment interpretation was accurate, but who absolutely would not agree that ACLU had any business representing it, even if we were right about the First Amendment. And also, I think, because after the initial flurry of press coverage, Frank Collins sort of faded from sight. The debate centered on what was going on in the courts. The debate centered on the, on the legal arguments, both inside and outside the courtroom. And, and Collins sort of faded off into the background. Um, ACLU, then, became the enemy. We represented his right to speak. An awful lot of people blurred that into, we represented Frank Collins. Um, David and I were both ceaselessly accused of, of believing that his point of view should be aired because we liked his point of view. Um, a perverse notion, obviously, <laughs> but there it was nevertheless. There's a chapter here that would be, you know, farcical, very funny, were it not so tragic, in which you and <laughs> David Goldberg are accused <laughs> of everything. That's one woman says, are you Jewish, young man? And you said, no, you're not. And she says, I spit on you. <laughs> and, then, and David Goldberg, of course, of being a renegade, and, and you seducing him to yes, have pro-Nazi yes, thoughts. I was frequently accused of, there was, there was a woman who <laughs> called to argue with me about the merits of the Skokie case. Um, she insisted that I remain quiet on the telephone lest I seduce her in the way I had confused <laughs> David Goldberger. Uh, no, my favorite of, of, yeah. that, of those kinds of, of logical arguments was, was the, the Jewish, non-Jewish syndrome. Oh, oh. People would, would call and say that I, being a non-Jew, could not possibly represent yeah. Frank Collins' right to demonstrate because I could not oh. possibly understand the anguish of the Jewish position. But then there was David Goldberger. They would then argue that David Goldberger, yeah. a Jew, could not possibly take the case because he was Jewish and therefore had no business representing him. We're talking about a very human feeling, the horror of it, and uh, this vile kid, and and also the feelings about growing anti-Semitism in the country, the undercurrent of it. There, all this is part of the pattern. And here's ACLU taking Collins' case. We come back to something called the First Amendment. The issues for us were, were certainly clear right from the very beginning. Um, and indeed, Skokie's argument of, of those issues, particularly within, within the, the quiet confines of the courtroom, um, bore out our initial response to the case, which was this is a, a pure First Amendment confrontation. 
what Skokie was seeking to do was, was to censor on a variety of, of grounds. Initially, they got from, from one of the, the lower courts in the Illinois system um, after, after a hearing which was very unusual by, by normal judicial standards. Um, they got an injunction which prevented Frank Collin from demonstrating on Saturday the 30th of March, 1977. Collin read that injunction properly to mean that on that day he could not demonstrate, and promptly announced he would demonstrate on the following day, May 1st. The village got the injunction extended so that Frank Cullen could not demonstrate at any time without permission of a court in the state of Illinois, and then passed three ordinances designed to further protect them against what they saw as, as the, the Frank Cullen assault. They made illegal <laughs> demonstrations in, in military uniforms for political purposes. They passed an ordinance which made group libel illegal, group libel being the notion that it is, it is illegal to utter or, or write words which slander a group by racial characteristic or by ethnic characteristic. Um, that was a distribution of literature ordinance, incidentally, so that it didn't really even apply. Colin had not intended to distribute literature, and therefore one, one can only guess that but it was a, it one was did, a I'm thought ask, they wanted I ask to, you a to include. Suppose he did intend to distribute. Oh, I think he had an absolute right to. That's what I mean. I don't think there's yeah. any question. And about suppose that. there were a march. I'm now stretching it further. You would still defend the case. Oh, certainly. I see. We certainly have to come to that because I'm going to say the, the core issue here was yeah. was simply, do we have the right under any circumstances to censor a political expression in public? Now, a lot of arguments attendant to the Skokie controversy went beyond that, but the core question was always simply, can you censor a political expression delivered in public under lawful circumstances? The First Amendment's answer to that is absolutely not. There are no circumstances under which that kind of censorship you know, there, there are so many uh, different uh, aspects to this case involving the right to express an opinion, no matter how reprehensible it might be. And so the Jewish war veterans we're going to have a counter-demonstration. This is interesting. And they were denied. Isn't that right? Now, here yes. we come to something, almost the core of it, as to why the First Amendment is so important. Yeah, I think, I think that is, in one sense, the critical issue confronting the village of Skokie. One of the ordinances passed by the village council in the wake of that traumatic weekend when Colin almost demonstrated twice in the village um, was was yet another insurance bonding scheme, this one applying to street demonstrations in the village. Um, that was aimed clearly at Frank Collin. Some months later, uh, when it was thought that Collin might again demonstrate in the village, a group of Jewish war veterans residing primarily in Skokie sought a permit from the village to demonstrate against Frank Collin. And the village, obviously trapped in, in, a, in a difficult bind, had to enforce their own ordinance against this group in order to make sure that it was not later argued that they were not enforcing it uniformly. So they did apply that ordinance. Um, and the veterans were thus denied, at least temporarily, the right to demonstrate against Frank Collin. They could have, indeed we would have loved it, had they called the American Civil Liberties Union and said our right to demonstrate in the village of Skokie has been denied, we want to file suit. We would have taken that case without hesitation. A, they uh, did not call. There's a perfect case of how one uh, seeking to repress an expression of opinion, no matter how horrendous it might be, can result in repression of your own opinion, too. 
Oh, well, this is what it's all about, really. The, the problem with every single one of the arguments Skokie and, and others in support of Skokie raised in, in every case was that inevitably they were sweeping more broadly than just Frank Collin and the Nazis. Yeah. Someone else was going to get censored every single time. See, now, counter-demonstrations were planned. I know that, of course. I received calls about that, and many did. counter the point is there could have been demonstration and counter-demonstration with enough police protection to prevent adequate. Indeed, there could have been, as a result of which there was silence. There was an attempt at that, you see. So we're talking about, because we know in, in London not too long ago, the National Front, which is a fascist mm -hmm. group there, planned a big uh, a march, and there was a tremendous counter-demonstration that really stopped them. It was a counter-demonstration that was so huge, you see. And it worked out quite well. The National Front was defeated by virtue of an overwhelming gathering of people who opposed the racism of theirs, and no and one was hurt. And indeed, That's at the, the very end of, of the Skokie confrontation, after Colin had decided not to demonstrate in Skokie, he went to the Federal Plaza here in Chicago and was literally unable to make himself heard yeah. for the roar of disapproval yeah. from the street across yeah. the way. Yeah. So That's what the First yeah. Amendment is all about. I mean, the, if there is no other lesson to be learned from the events of Skokie, it, it is that image of a group of, of Democrats, real Democrats, standing up to a fascist and shouting him down. That's what the First Amendment is all about. That's Either. where we end up. Or at least gathering. And by the very nature of the gathering itself, but we're yeah. talking the about only, The only way to reject so Frank Collin is to know what he stands no for. No free speech for fascists was the call of one. <laughs> that could also be, no matter how horrendous fascists are, that means no free speech for communists, no free speech for Democrats, no free speech for uh, civil rights people, no free speech for vegetarians, no free speech for abortionists or anti-abortionists. That's right. It, That's right. Come, so uh, we come to the core of what democracy and freedom of thought. By the way, it's the thought that was being said. That's right. We're not talking That's about right. an act. If there were a violent act, plan at something else. We're talking about expression of thought. The sure. thoughts of free sure. go There is a, a vast difference both in yeah. law and in common sense but between the, the expression of an idea and the, the yeah. acting out of you know, that Dave, idea. we're going to take a pause now. Uh, David Hamlin, who for four years and four, shall I say, dramatic years, putting in Miley, was executive director of the Chicago chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. And Beacon Press just published his very enthralling book, indeed, an important with the Nazi Skokie conflict. Subtitle of Civil Liberties will resume. And now, as to what happened to ACLU during that time, as well as a theory of a remarkable uh, student, scholar of the law, Harry Calvin, the heckler's veto, and something called menticide. It's all very fascinating and terribly important. We'll resume in a moment after this message. And so we're, we resume with David Hamlin. And, uh, okay, what, what's happened now to the gatherings, to the membership of ACLU and uh, the meetings and, and yourself and David Goldberger? Well, there, is, there are two principal responses. One is, although we didn't know it initially, um, it took us about six months to find out, ACLU people left the organization in droves, um, literally stood up and walked out taking their checkbooks with them. Um, by, by December of, of 1977, late in the year which, which began in, in, in everybody's ACLU mind in April, not in January, um, 
we were cutting our budget drastically, and I mean for an organization with not a very large income to begin with, drastically. We lost five employees in the space of those nine or eight or nine Out months. of how many? Out of 13. Wow, almost half um, the staff. So that wow. it was almost half the staff. We, uh, we had no prospect of, of an end to those resignations. These, and, and at that point, we were eight or nine months into the controversy and had yet to sustain a legal victory anywhere on the map. Um, we were very depressed indeed. It was, it was hard times. Um, at the same time, that, that anger that we talked about, that, that flash of passionate reaction to Colin and what he represented, continued to be directed at us. David and I would, would out of perversity, if nothing else, continue to go out and defend ACLU's position to, to try and at least get the dialogue going so that people we were confident once the courts upheld the First Amendment would at least understand what the basis for that up upholding was. And they were unpleasant about our position. They well, didn't like our position. Uh, unpleasant uh, is a mild way of putting it. I think you should point out, too, that when, when emotions are high and a certain perspective is lost, and it's, of course, easy for me to say this uh, to someone who has suffered tremendously. And, you know, when, when, when this is so... Uh, Anything could happen. You were threatened. I mean, you were scared too at times in attending certain meetings. I think I think both David and I encountered had some encounters in which fear was the, was the principal reaction. Um, it was it was an odd set of circumstances. However, the issues were were so dreadfully important both to those of us standing on the stage and and those in the audience listening that one dared not pass up the opportunity to to debate, to defend, to talk, to to even brawl. Um, the the difficulty was that that enormous welled up anger over anti-Semitism, over racism, over over the kind of, of true evil that Frank Collin represented uh, was consuming in many cases, and and so we would find ourselves in circumstances where, as as I describe, I was in a, a synagogue in Skokie, having had my life threatened before I walked into the room. Um, it it was it was frightening, of course, but it. It speaks more to the intensity of, of the First Amendment's protections. I mean, if people can get that fired up yeah. within the confines of the First Amendment, um, how can we not include Frank Collins' yeah. insignificant, although important, little band of people in the, in the dialogue? And so we come to another argument offered by Skokie against ACLU and uh, defending Collins' right to demonstrate. That's something Harry Calvin, who taught for so many years, a very remarkable and humane scholar of the law, called Heckler's Veto. Now, what's the argument that if he appears, he will evoke violence on the part of those opposing him? That's, that is the core of, of Skokie's case in, in virtually every respect, and, and the argument is, is very carefully drawn. Um, Calvin's scholarship on it is, is astonishingly like what happened in Skokie, in fact. Um, the theory goes like this. If Frank Collin comes to the village of Skokie, he will so anger or so frighten or so threaten residents of the village that they might attack him. Therefore, we will censor Frank Collin. The, th the theory is called the heckler's veto. It means that the audience response to a speaker's words is justification for censoring the speaker. It has enormous First Amendment problems. It's, it's fraught with flaws. The most obvious one is that, that you and I as a team could, could thus go about the country stopping every demonstration we didn't like simply by threatening violence against it. It's an awesome weapon in the hands of anybody with half an ounce of sense. But the principal problem is that what Skokie was saying was, 
Our villagers might break the law, but Frank Collin will be the criminal. That, that can't be. Because if he didn't show up there, they wouldn't have broken the law. Quite, quite so. The, the enormous importance of, of the fact that Frank Collin was going to be out of doors in a public place and was providing advance notice really, really frames the entire case. It, it, it tells us a number of things about why Skokie's arguments cannot work. Principally, of course, there is that voluntary attendance problem, and, and each of the courts in turn literally hammered at Skokie with that, that continuing point. It is simply this. If Frank Collin tells you in advance that he's going to demonstrate on the steps of the village hall and you believe you will be offended, angered, or even driven to lawless action by that message, do not attend. You don't have to go. No one forces you to go. You may stay away. So this is different from uh, an old... Uh, a decision handed down by the Supreme Court way back, Oliver Wendell Holmes did it. Uh, they, uh, you have no right to shout fire in a crowded theater. Explain the difference now. Falsely shout fire falsely. in a crowded theater. I presume one who fairly shouts fire yeah. in oh, a no, theater falsely. is given a medal, not a citation from, from a court. That, that argument is, is the universal in, in, in American political First Amendment conversation. Everybody knows about fire in a crowded theater. It, it has several very unique elements, none of which really applied to, to Frank Collins' plan in Skokie. The first, obviously, is that if we are in a theater, we are talking about a confined audience. Um, that would not have been the case in, in Skokie, where it was going to be out of doors. You have no restriction on the audience's ability to move or to walk away. That's a critical element, because what, what Holmes saw coming was a circumstance in which the particular false shout and, and, and the, the invalidity of the shout is terribly important, would create panic amongst those assembled to hear a different message. That is, they had come to hear Studs Terkel give a lecture or David Hamlin read from his book or, or watch Marilyn Monroe in a movie and were not expecting that sudden surprise shout of fire. The reason it's a false shout is because there is, as Holmes obviously saw, another point of view. Someone has the right to stand up and say, wait, there is no fire. In the panic which follows the shout of fire, that ability to respond is censored, and that's what Holmes saw as the danger to the First Amendment, the inability to continue the dialogue created by the panic of a surprise message. Frank Collin was not going to surprise anybody in the village of Skokie. The last thing he could have done was sneak up on him. Um, they knew he was coming at least a month in advance every single time he decided to demonstrate, and they were prepared to meet him so that the element of surprise was simply gone. If he panicked them, it would be because they were voluntarily there to be panicked, and therefore that element didn't exist, and obviously the village had made allowance for their right to respond, so the other message, wait, there is no fire, could have been delivered. Fire in a crowded theater doesn't fit. So we come to something else now. As you point out, it, you can't compare, certainly not emotionally, the case say, of Bull Connor preventing civil rights uh, proponents in, uh, in Birmingham from having their say with his dogs and his fire hose. You can't compare that with good because of the emotional setup. In, in, in fact, the substance setup is wholly different. Entirely different. Um, and, and we learned that, or I learned that, too late. Um, our, our first reaction to, the, to the, the rush of activity in the Skokie case was, was, for some good reasons, frankly, to treat it like another civil rights confrontation. Here are the evil censors. Here are the bad guys trying to do damage to that precious document, the First Amendment. They're just like Bull Connor. They're just like Richard Nixon. We've seen it all before, and they deserve to be pilloried for it. 
that was absolutely wrong on on virtually every count. Um, for for one thing, the village of Skokie were not were not deranged elected officials out out to do damage to the constitution. They were honoring the will of the people who elected them. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. So there was no malicious intent of of, of the Nixonian type involved here. Um, moreover, they were raising legitimate arguments designed to protect their particular community from a true assault, from from a truly monstrous message uh, which Frank Collin intended to deliver. To treat them as if they were Bull Connor, um, as as I did, um, to treat them as if they had a, a Nixonian. No, what you said, what you said, quoting there, he said, uh, "The village of has shredded the First Amendment," which. Which was true. <laughs> it, yeah. it was, but it was yeah. ill-spoken. Um, in fact, what the village had done was, was to, that, that was a quote in response to those three ordinances we've talked about. Um, what they had done was to set up a, a kind of defense mechanism um, in, in order to further honor the wishes of their constituents and their most vocal constituents at this point. You have to remember that the village was in utter turmoil from the moment Frank Cohen announced his intentions publicly. Uh, and for several weeks thereafter, there was a long period of time when it, it seemed, although it was not so, it seemed as if Frank Collin could simply whip the village up at whim by threatening another demonstration, which would not take place, but which he would threaten any time he felt like it. Indeed, one of, his, one of his underlings at one point created a demonstration that Collin himself didn't know about simply by chattering away to a newsman one afternoon. Um, that story went spinning across yeah. the wires as fact, incidentally. We can't deny, see... Uh, the experiences, the agonies of many of the inhabitants of Skokie. Absolutely not. Their emotions by this wretched kid coming along with his barbaric uh, theories, ideas, and that. And something called menticide, the theory of menta. Perhaps hit that and analyze that. There was, there was a kind of side piece of litigation um, beyond the main Skokie cases, that is, beyond Skokie's injunction and the, the challenge to the three ordinances that the village passed, brought by um, a resident of the village of Skokie named Saul Goldstein, who argued on behalf of survivors of the Holocaust residing in the village that Frank Collin would commit, and, and I use verbal quotes here, menticide, when he, if and when he appeared in the village. Metacide was defined as the willful infliction of emotional harm. And in, in the framework of, of the suit filed by, by Saul Goldstein, it was intended to convey the notion that the mere presentation of the symbols and, and the trappings of fascism, of Nazism, would be enough to trigger recollections amongst the survivors sufficient to cause them psychological damage. Therefore, they argued, Frank Cullen can be censored in advance they, they called, they, they fashioned the word metacide to define what they called a tort, that is a civil wrong, not a criminal action, but a civil wrong, um, and then argued that that civil wrong could be prevented in advance if it could be proved that indeed those recollections would be triggered by Frank Collins' presence. It was a very compelling emotional argument. There is no denying that Frank Collin, indeed, whether we call it metacide or, or something at least a little more appropriate and perhaps less sensational, um, Frank Collin does trigger memories. His symbols trigger trigger awesome, dangerous memories for, for virtually all of us. Um, and indeed, some of the survivors of the Holocaust residing in Skokie might, had they witnessed Frank Collin's demonstration, might have been, been psychologically damaged further than, than they already were. 
um, so that so that at the core of, of the, the meta side argument there is indeed a compelling germ of truth that indeed that experience was so horrid that anything which which triggers memories of it can be viewed as as truly awful the problem first was that there was there was no notion of, of the the concept of speech and then action um, that is if the damage that that the survivors in Skokie asserted might take place had taken place they had a suit against Frank Collin for those actual provable damages to use the notion that the damages might take place as an argument to stop political speech was inappropriate for the First Amendment um, but it was more inappropriate sadly I think um, although it speaks volumes about the commitment of those on 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 the side of survivors versus Nazis um, metacide had already taken place when the suit had been filed if indeed it exists um, Saul Goldstein, who filed the suit, had already witnessed a couple of Frank Collin demonstrations. He'd voluntarily taken himself down to Marquette Park to see what this man was all about. That certainly shores up his, his, his firm assertion that he was prepared to confront Frank Collin under any circumstances and could not stay away from Frank Collin. At the same time, however, it, it suggests that if metacide does exist, it had already occurred in Saul Goldstein's case and he should have filed suit against that action which had already occurred. Presumably, had he won, he could have shut Frank Collin down on financial yeah. grounds alone. Instead, he chose to use the concept as a weapon for censorship. Um, and the suit, quite legitimately, I think, was never really taken seriously as an instrument of censorship. Um, as we're talking, uh, there was a silence on the part of the Illinois-Chicago Bar Association because it was a First Amendment question coming up. And there was this silence. There was, there was reprehensible conduct within the Illinois judiciary over this entire matter, um, less with the Metacide case than with the more important and more critical first core First Amendment cases filed in and around the village itself. Um, they, they took their time uh, in the face of, a, of an order from the United States Supreme Court demanding expedition. They took their time. You know about the time. local and state courts. We're talking about the Illinois judiciary yeah. here. We're mm -hmm. talking about the lower courts and the appellate court, and mm -hmm. to some extent the state Supreme mm -hmm. Court as well. Mm -hmm. They dragged when they were told specifically by the United States Supreme Court not to drag any longer. There was they, a Supreme Court opinion handed down. There was a very early Supreme Court decision on a procedural question, but it was a terribly important procedural question. It was, it was the contention of ACLU that where censorship was taking place, as it was and had been for some two months at that point, Frank Collin was not able to demonstrate in the village of Skokie, that those being censored have an absolute right to find out if the First Amendment is being violated by that censorship or not. That wholly apart from how the decision goes, there has to be speed, because the First Amendment is, is so vital to the framework of, of political freedoms that every day it is tampered with is, is a great loss indeed. The Illinois judiciary, from bottom to top, was not at all persuaded of that of that theory. Um, while Frank Collin was being censored illegally, as it turned out, they dragged their feet. They took as much time as they possibly could. At one point, they deliberately scheduled a hearing in a way which precluded Frank Collin from demonstrating. And I mean deliberately scheduled that hearing in a way which censored Frank Collin's demonstration. In the midst of all this, we took that that small question, should this matter be reviewed quickly through the federal system, to the U.S. Supreme Court, which said emphatically there is no question. Either you get rid of the order which creates the censorship or you review it immediately. In response to that, the Illinois Supreme Court took two weeks to respond and then sent the matter back to a lower court with still no ruling. That 
that whole process was was so callous of of the most precious of, of freedoms in this country. You do not play fast and loose with something as vital as one's right to speak. And so the federal court finally, from federal judge Decker. Indeed. The, the Illinois Supreme Court finally saw the wisdom of, of the First Amendment some six months after the Supreme Court had told the Illinois system to move rapidly. Um, but between the, the, the ringing affirmation from Judge Decker and then from, from his colleagues further up in the federal system and, and the really forceful decision from the Illinois Supreme Court on the merits, um, it became clear very rapidly that Frank Collin had an absolute right to demonstrate in the village of Skokie under circumstances which the village could control to prevent riot and, and confrontation. So a year and a half this was. Now, what was the final outcome? Finally. Not with a bang, but a whimper. A whimper. Um, and, and I think that's, that's that really was the... That Colin appearing at the Daily Plaza. What happened Plaza. was that, that Frank Collin chose not to go to the village of Skokie, having won the right to do so. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about why he made that decision. He was terrified of the opposition he was going to meet in the village. He would have looked like an utter fool had he gone, because I am convinced that there would have been upwards of 50,000 wow. counter-demonstrators facing Colin and as many of his followers as he could get, and it was beginning to become clear that he couldn't get very many. It was a high-risk proposition. Um, and also, I imagine he'd be exposed. I mean, the big over he beyond was, risk. He ran the risk of exposure at a time when, when that exposure would be most hurtful to him in, in his own small way because he'd been built up so big by the press at that point. He was, he was truly a full-fledged Hitlerian clone by See, then. We come again to the... By the way, I, I say it, you don't have us, the irresponsibility of press and radio. We have, uh, I don't know what journalism should be. I think I know what it should be, uh, serious, investigative, and uh, having a, a sense of perspective. And we had, you know, kids on networks have to be number one with the fastest news, young yeah. boy, young girl reading the stuff off the ticker with the same smile just before the commercial and after the commercial. <laughs> and that played a role. But now we come, uh, by the way, in, in London, not too long ago, something similar to uh, Collins Group, the National Front, mm -hmm. which is a fascist uh, English group, tried to have a demonstration. And there was thousands of counter-demonstrators, and it didn't go. And nobody was hurt. And there was, a, there was a democratic display, really. But we come to now ACLU, which, by the way, you and David Goldberg, I might, my own editorial kind of quite heroic and... Uh, on, on it all the way through. <laughs> he had traumatic moments. Out of it came this book. So uh, ACLU recouped as far as membership was concerned. We certainly, as I understand it, ACLU has, has regained most of its losses financially, if not in terms of, of members. ACLU is, is an organization which no one ought to expect will become a mass movement. Um, it's, it's never been such a thing. Um, I would tremble for it were it to become a mass movement, in fact. Um, but it does need a, a core of sympathetic civil libertarians to survive. That core was somewhat damaged, I think, for a short period of time during, during the worst of the Skokie descent. Um, but most of those people, I think largely because of, of the court's view of the matter, ultimately, decided that indeed the principles on which ACLU had stood had been valid, and the decision to stand on them, whether anyone liked it or not, had been the only one available. Um, I think ACLU would have died, literally died on its feet, had David Goldberger and I made the opposite decision. That is, had we chosen not to represent the First Amendment in that most 
climactic of cases. No, we never once. They ought to have deserted us in droves. Yes. We never once quoted Voltaire. <laughs> but there it is, nonetheless. You can't get away from it. Uh, defend your right, no matter how reprehensible it might be, to paraphrase him. We come back to that First Amendment that has always been, it's there, but always been under attack in, in one way or another, hasn't it? Always has been, continues to be, even as we speak. There are, there are new horizons for censorship. There is, in, in California, there is at this moment in the state legislature a bill to outlaw organizations preaching hate or distrust of races. Um, that is to say, there are there are still those who would rather than confront the Frank Collins of this world and shout them down, would prefer to drive them underground and pretend to censor them out of existence. So they will be with us yeah, always. So we come back again to this First Amendment, which says no matter how outrageous or inhuman or obscene an idea, we're talking about ideas. There's an old German song, a libertarian song, "Die Gedanken sind frei," thoughts are free. And it applies to uh, bastards as well as others. That yes. apply to all. And it, unless it does, it, it's uh, in danger. We'll come back to that again, don't we? It is, it is a magnificent instrument of, of political freedom. You, you come always back to the notion that the way to deal with Frank Collin in the United States of America is to look at him, is to listen to him, and is, in, the, in this case, to laugh at him, to, to deride him as a political non-entity, to disagree vehemently with everything he says. All of that is protected by that, that remarkable group of sentences called the First Amendment, which, which protect my right to challenge him as well as his right to challenge me, which protected the rights of, of those 50,000 would-be anti-Nazi demonstrators in Skokie, which guarantees the debate by which we run this government day by day. Um, and, of course, we come back uh, this very thing to how important a press and uh, TV and radio are provided that all ideas are given free expression, and that is another story as to whether even as to whether they're given equal free expression. That comes to something. That's another subject. And so we come back to that uh, theme again, don't we? That uh, that a book burning, the burning of a book, and uh, the repression of a thought, no matter how horrendous it might be, uh, one is tied to the other, isn't it? Ultimately, in purely political terms, the enemy I fear most is the one I cannot see, mm -hmm. um, the one who has been driven from my side. I want Frank Collin and, and his ilk in the streets where I can measure their effectiveness, where I can watch their strength, where I can be prepared to take ever more drastic action against them, short of, of engaging in lawlessness. They must be met and confronted, and the only way to meet and confront people of, of evil intent is to know who they are and where they are and what they have to say. Of course, you do know that every once in a while a newspaper sends a young journalist out on the streets in different towns, and he has a copy of the Bill of Rights, first ten amendments, and there's people, what about this? And many say, oh, that's a commie. That's a, I won't sign that's a commie thing, so we come back to that question of how important it really is. Sure, sure. It's Any it's other fine. thoughts, David? This is David Hamlin, my guest, his book, and it's a terribly important one, I think, and by the way, very vividly written, recounting this event so close to home. The Nazi-Skokie Conflict, or the subtitle of Civil Liberties Battle, published by Beacon. Uh, any reflections now, uh, some, uh, some, how many, three years later or so? Well, I don't, I have a sense that the issue will never go away, um, for one thing. Not, not because I've written a book about it, but because I find that people are, are, simply fascinated by the, the structure of freedom which, which could protect someone as reprehensible as Frank Collin. 
and yet protect its own its own interior freedom at the same time. The notion that that only Frank Collin lost in the entire Skokie controversy, I think, is absolutely valid. The fascist won a victory for free speech. That's a flat contradiction of his own goals. Um, if we learn nothing else from that whole experience, we ought to have learned that we can rely ultimately on the courts to say the one thing to fascists that they cannot stand to hear. You have freedom. That is not what Frank Collin wanted. That is not where he was headed. To have, to have the, the strongest language possible confront him with the one truth he can't stand is the only resolution that was available in the Muskogee controversy, and that's how it came out. He was told that he was free. David Hamlin, thank you very much for a number of reasons.